Hi, Jeremy. Thank you so much for setting aside time to talk with me today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So to get started, we know from global media reports that massive flooding in Pakistan has ravaged the nation with more than 33 million displaced and over a thousand dead since June. And now the organization you're a part of, Shelterbox, is sending emergency aid to Pakistan. Before we dive into those specifics, though, can you tell me just a bit about the origins of Shelterbox as an organization? Sure. Shelterbox provides emergency shelter and other essential items uh, following disaster and in prolonged conflict zones. Um, the idea being, or our mission statement is that no one should be without shelter after disaster or in an emergency. The organization started in the UK in 2000, and it was born out of a Rotary Club there. Um, and since then has grown uh, rapidly um, throughout the world. And unfortunately, uh, the need for what we do also seems to be growing rapidly. And what populations would you say Shelterbox serves, generally speaking? Part of Shelterbox's mission and values is to serve the most vulnerable people in the most hard to reach places that have been affected by disaster or conflict. Um, so part of what we do is carefully make assessments and do monitoring following disasters and try to find the populations that are not being served uh, by either other aid organizations or often that don't have government agencies that can help meet their needs. But finding the most vulnerable and helping the most vulnerable is, is part of Shelterbox's DNA. Okay, so now on to Pakistan specifically. When did Shelterbox first start to take note of the crisis and see the potential to help? Right, good question. So the flooding and the monsoon rains have been taking place, uh, unfortunately, since June. Uh, but this past weekend was a significant storm, uh, and you saw more than 100 people die just over this last weekend. Um, what's really remarkable about the situation, and we do believe this is climate change fueled, is how broad and wide the scope of the flooding and damage is. Uh, it extends from the north to the south. Most of the districts of Pakistan have declared disasters or even calamities, and we're seeing displacement or people being forced from their homes or homes being swept away all the way through the country. So we've been following it closely, and but with a, a kind of a heightened sense of urgency, I guess, if you will, uh, starting this last week. So in what ways is Shelterbox equipped to help with this disaster specifically? Um, Shelterbox has responded to at least 75 flood disasters since our founding in 2000. And we have responded in Pakistan before in 2010 to massive flooding there. And that response served thousands of people. So what we're seeing is that the need for shelter and other essential items is, is very great right now and likely to keep growing. There's more forecasts for monsoons in September. Um, and we have aid pre-positioned in the region to deploy once we figure out what aid items are most needed and where they can be used best. You mentioned that flooding back in 2010, 2011. What kind of aid was Shelterbox able to offer back then? In that response, it was a, a full response that included our tents. There were almost tent cities set up uh, along with full kits that included household items like cook sets sleeping pads, uh, clothes in some instances, water uh, carriers and filtration, and our full response tent. To be clear, what's happening right now with our response is we're sending an emergency team in this week 
that will work with local partners and Rotary districts and, and other uh, groups on the ground to determine exactly what the needs are and what aid is the best fit. I was just going to ask, how does Shelterbox work with those on the ground affected by disaster to kind of determine what support the region would need? One thing that makes Shelterbox uh, unique in the humanitarian sector and one thing that's evolved over time is our work almost always uses partners and, and listens to groups on the ground to make sure that we're delivering the right aid and getting it to the right places. One way we do that is we're the official project partner for disaster of Rotary International. Many of your listeners have probably heard of Rotary districts and Rotary clubs. There's, there's several here in Santa Barbara. But we often rely on those local clubs and districts to help us with logistics, to connect us with local leaders, and to start a dialogue as soon as we can about what's going on there, in addition to, of course, monitoring the news and getting information from other sources. One more point on uh, Pakistan. One thing that we're seeing is, you know, as you mentioned, over 1,100 people have died so far, and it's believed that 380 of those are children. And in terms of how we look at the situation and what aid items are needed, uh, the latest reports, even this morning, are raising concerns about waterborne illnesses that are starting to show up in hospitals. So to us, that indicates that things like water filtration and hygiene and other items uh, within the disease sort of sphere are needed. And so those might be the type of items that we try to uh, make sure we have a supply chain for and can get into the country. So that's I just wanted to mention that that's one example of how we sort of adapt as the situation, as we learn more about a situation. Mm. So it really depends. It's, it's not just saying, oh, this is how we would respond to floods in general, but it's really looking at how that flooding affects the specific region at the specific time. Absolutely. And it's even it's even it can be even more complicated than that because it can also involve, well, if we have a partner that can provide, say, shelter, say, basic tents, or if we have a, 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 a partner that can provide hygiene kits, then we know we can partner with them and not need to do that. We can focus our aid items on something else. So it's just it's a complicated rubric, I guess, uh, or calculation that we're doing as fast as we can to make sure we're getting the right aid items and there isn't too much of one thing and not enough of another thing uh, and so on. One of the things that's important in terms of how we respond and especially to this flooding crisis is we do pre-position our aid around the world so that it can be delivered more quickly. And so we do have aid in the region and uh, are working to make sure that it can be delivered quickly. How does that work? The, The team that's currently being sent out are they being sent out from Santa Barbara, or the U.S., or an area near Pakistan? Actually, it's even more complicated than that. The team that's being sent actually is coming from multiple countries. We actually have staff and we have volunteers that are highly trained for deployments that are in all over the world. So it's truly a global effort, including in this first emergency response team. What I meant in terms of the aid is that we have we have five warehouses around the world where we store or pre-position our aid so that when a disaster happens like this, the supply chain is is shorter and, and we can move faster in terms of getting the aid into the country. Okay, so I've seen those pictures of those turquoise boxes with shelter box labeled on the front. Are those the baseline support you provide and then you add on more resources as needed? Right, so the shelter box, that, that green shelter box was how the organization started. And it's actually evolved quite a bit since then. So, for example, the, the 2010 flooding in Pakistan, I think that involved sending those boxes that had 
basically everything a family would need in it immediately after the disaster, the tent, cook set, water purification, things like that. We've actually evolved some, and and I don't know, we don't know yet if those boxes will be what is sent in this disaster. What we found is that by carefully tailoring the eight items, we can be more effective, and we can also get more items in more quickly. So sometimes we'll send what we call shelter kits, which are basically smaller bags that contain tools and tarps and other items that can be customized and are easier to transport, and then that also serve the families. So obviously, there's a lot happening in the world. Floods in Pakistan, war in Ukraine, an ongoing pandemic. How does ShelterBox determine what crises to address? Right, good question. And it's a hard question. ShelterBox uh, has programs going all over the world right now. In Ukraine, we are one of the first organizations on the ground in Ukraine, and we've since launched three programs there to help different affected populations, including those leaving the country. Those programs are now evolving into a a second phase that will likely focus on winter and making sure people have warm clothes and places to shelter as the winter approaches there. But we also have programs in Ethiopia, in Syria, in Cameroon, in Nigeria, and Burkina Faso. So, you know, we, we try to go where, as I mentioned earlier, we try to go where the need is greatest. And unfortunately, as we're seeing with climate change, these disasters are becoming more severe, seemingly by year. And one good example is what's going on right now in Eastern Africa or the Horn of Africa and Ethiopia and Somalia, uh, Kenya. They're now suffering through a historic drought. They've missed three Uh, I'm sorry, they've missed four consecutive rain seasons and are likely to miss a fifth. And millions of people are affected. And it's driving millions of people or thousands of people, I should say, uh, from their homes to look for food and water. So we recently launched a program there as well to help provide emergency shelter in that region. So that will start in Ethiopia, where we've actually worked for several years. And then we'll also have another program in Somalia. A question that comes to mind for me regards the humanitarian ethical aspect. How do you, as an organization based in the U.S., the U.K., more Eurocentric areas, how do you work in regions without potentially overstepping? In other words, how do you make sure to consider the needs and the values of the people in those communities? Right. It's a great question uh, and one that ShelterBox has worked on quite a bit recently um, in terms of implementing EDI and other principles. One sort of real concrete way uh, that we do that is through our work with partnerships uh, and making sure we're talking to local groups and leaders uh, as we're developing aid responses, uh, especially in ones that are in prolonged conflict zones like Ethiopia or, 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 or like Syria. The other part of that is also through training. Uh, a big part of what we do is train local community groups and local leaders and how to use our gear. And so the aid is actually coming in some respects through local communities, if that makes sense. So there's a lot of listening involved. There's a lot of understanding of cultural differences and learning about cultural differences and being respectful of those. And we have incorporated that into all of our processes as we carry out responses. How do you bring in funding for these initiatives? I know that Shelterbox is a nonprofit. 
Shelter Blocked is entirely privately funded. We get most of our funding through individual donations or foundations or um, other charitable groups, really. So, you know, we rely on donations just like many other groups do. Uh, the best way, if you want to become involved, is to visit shelterboxusa.org. We have ways to give money there if you're so inclined uh, or other ways to volunteer and, and help with what we're doing. All right. Thank you so much again for talking to me and well wishes with all of your efforts in the future, Jeremy. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.